The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, bringing you insights to unlock sustainable finance in Africa's mining sector. APSA is a registered FSP. Well, it is the day two of the mining Adaba in Cape Town. And uh, after the headline acts yesterday of the president and the minerals minister, uh, things getting into more of a pedestrian industry footing. But we'll reflect on that this evening. Bulelwa Mabasa, who is uh, with us this evening, looking forward to catching up with her, uh, the worksman's head of, uh, of land reform. She's also a member of the president's land reform advisory panel. So um, the, the, the issue... Issues of land and mining are, are certainly very, very intertwined. And then the very sad news today, um, being sort of keeping a watching brief on the health of Andy Rice. And Andy, a long-time contributor to The Money Show and to many, many shows previous to this one, um, died in hospital this morning. Um, he'd been ill for a long time and um, we paid a huge tribute to him when we said farewell from a retirement perspective, uh, but sadly really not been very well. So we will once again uh, reignite our tributes to Andy Rice this evening and just also just to give you a little memory of the deft and delicate touch of Andy Rice when it came to contentious issues with advertising. As I said to Oresti Patricius this morning, he's the man who runs Ornico, I said, I often tried to wrestle Andy down to my level and he never rose to the bait. Um, and yeah, Mike Abel at MNC Saatchi Abel paying tribute today and many others. I'll reflect on that this evening here on The Money Show. Uh, we've got Warren Ingram in his newish slot at half past seven on a Tuesday evening. Personal finance, always really, really useful. And Rutendo Huindingui, Dr. Huindingui. Bear that in mind. Um, he will be with us at 20 past seven. Our Africa business report, the death over the weekend, of course, of the Namibian president, a very significant move, but already um, the gap has been filled. Succession planning very firmly in place there, which is good news. But uh, we'll reflect on that tonight and lots of other big money stories on the day. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. I was at an event yesterday and people were doing the thing that they do at events, swapping stories, notes of careers. And there was one person who introduced themselves as working for Anglo-American. And two people in the group grimaced. Two people in the room actually went, ooh. Um, And it's hardly surprising. The company really undergoing some very painful cost-cutting at the moment. The chief executive, Duncan Wanblatt, at the Mining Adaba, saying that they may need deeper cost-cutting. The firm not anticipating conditions to improve for platinum group metals particularly soon. They're seeing a little bit of a sparkle return to diamonds, but it's a tough, tough, tough environment. Mining Adaba underway in Cape Town, the 30th outing. I can't believe that already, but yes, it is. 1994 was the first time there was a Mining Adaba in Cape Town. I'm sure in those days far smaller, far more modest than the extravaganza that it is today. A remarkable event, the who's who of the mining industry worldwide in town looking at opportunities in the mining sector. And there are plenty of big issues, of course. I mean, domestically, it is the issues, the backlogs and the ports. It is the road networks. It's the rail, uh, along with the energy crisis, of course, and many, many other issues that are well known to us. Together, of course, with the lower commodity prices 
issues and the many geopolitical issues that uh, the globe is facing at the moment. One issue that does need to be handled head-on is the issue of land and the rights of communities at mines and what happens to those communities when the resource is depleted and the miners move on. Let's talk to Bolelwa Mabasa this evening, Head of Land Reform and a member of the President's Land Reform Advisory Committee. She works at Worksman's, of course. Bolelwa, welcome to The Money Show this evening. What are your big concerns when it comes to the issues, this, I suppose, this collision of land rights and, uh, you know, the, the, the rights of communities and the needs of a, a mining sector that needs access to the resources that lie beneath the soil? Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for having me. And uh, also, once uh, I'd like to also just share my, my deep condolences over the passing of Andy Rice, an institution, really. Um, Legend, and it's lovely to, Andy Rice. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Bruce, um, many challenges for the mining sector in our country. And, you know, we've always heard government talk about uh, diversifying or, you know, making it a more inclusive uh, I- industry. And uh, the fact that communities have been left uh, to bear the brunt of mining before, during, and afterwards. But I think what um, what really uh, uh, I thought about as a, a great opportunity is sometimes that you know government ignores current legislation that is there to assist them to kickstart and to encourage this idea of a mining sector that is inclusive of communities. So in my thinking about it, I thought about a current section that exists actually within the legislation that allows communities to apply for preference mining rights. But of course, that begs the question, if communities aren't able to put up the financial capabilities, the technical know-how um, without the support of government. And so in this, uh, you know, uh, place that we find ourselves in where rare earth minerals are being explored and there's a need for exploration and so forth. I feel like it's an it's taken opportunity for the mining industry to kind of do good by um by communities, you know, as opposed to what we've seen in the in the past decades, which has been you know, an industry that extracts that is just extractive, uh, where the environment isn't looked after and they up and go when the resource is finished. So Really, I think that maybe conversations that could be had right now is how the current legislation, you know, being the the Minerals and Petroleum Development Act, could be implemented to its latter so that these communities have a fair chance of actually being uh, stakeholders in and be part of a, a kind of a renewed or a revolutionized mining industry. And, of course, we see communities uh, with illegal mining activities where mines have been left abandoned, communities or even former employees have the wherewithal to know where the resources lie. And, and obviously, in the in the current climate of, of, of poverty and unemployment, it creates a, a very you know a, a very real opportunity for illegal mining activities to continue. And yeah, it's it's such a difficult one, and it's I don't think it's unique to South Africa. Of course, uh, there are legislative frameworks around the world, particularly in more developed economies, which I think would offer greater protections, perhaps, to people in mining communities. Are, is there a global best practice from which we can learn to create sustainable communities long after the resources are depleted? Absolutely, we have. 
very international best practices. We've got the international uh, framework and guidelines that work across the world, especially where, um, you know, in, in the, the international speaks speaks of host communities and indigenous uh, communities. And in South Africa, I think um, we have not gone, uh, you know, as far as we, we, we should and we could in terms of the protection of communities, even Bruce, in the context where mining operations need to expand. Uh, oftentimes, we find that communities have got to be resettled, they've got to be moved, that grave sites have to be moved, and, and, and all of this is happening in a context where there isn't, A, enough enforcement, and B, there isn't uh, a greater focus on making sure that whether you're removing a community from where they are or uh, uh, whether you need to provide them with compensation for, for the resettlement, I find that they, you know, there isn't much focus by mining companies on making sure that they do follow the best practices. Thank you, Bulelwa Mabasa, who is the head of land reform at Worksman's this evening. Big, uh, yeah, it's a, more issues for the mining sector to consider, of course, um, South Africa's mining sector under quite a lot of pressure at the moment, and there'll be some pushback on it. But if you want sustainable communities over the long term, you do have to think differently. Well, the very sad news today of the death of Andy Rice. For many years, a massively valuable contributor, not only to this show, but to others across our stations, and also just a really lovely human being. Andy was a legend of the advertising industry, born in England, brother, and this tickled him senseless. I mean, he was brother to Sir Tim Rice, who, whose collaborations with Andrew Lloyd Webber brought joy to generations of theatre-goers in the United Kingdom, of course, and he was always amused by by his brother's success, but also very, very proud. But he carved an enormously successful path of his own. Uh, Fiwed this evening on my Twitter account says, condolences to Andy's family. It's so sad. I often wondered where he was. Sad news. Cizile Makola this evening saying, I also love the feature. Oh, no. And that is unfortunately the reality of the news I have to share with you. I mean, Andy bowed out of his radio duties two years ago he first became ill and at the time we commemorated him and I'm very very glad we did because he got to hear it and he got to hear some voices of some really powerful people within the advertising industry all singing his praises and he was very very touched by the warmth that so many people had from for him and he was also massively self-deprecating but my goodness me he knew that he knew his stuff he had a unique ability to talk about advertising and not about the adverts that he liked or disliked. He understood the theory of advertising, understood the science of advertising, he understood the intrinsic strength or weakness of adverts, whether he liked them or not. And I thought what would be nice is if we could find just an extract of a show where Andy spoke about an ad. And by the end of this clip, I defy you to know what Andy really thinks personally about this advert. This is from, I think, 2017. Andy was in fine shape. He was very, very well. He was at the top of his money show game. Here is an example of the late Andy Rice's deep enthusiasm for the trade of advertising that he loved so much. I want you to imagine one of those 
flat desert-like pans where they hold the world speed record competitions salty and dusty salty and desolate and completely open and i want you to think about this impossibly cool individual so cool in this hot environment that you can see the condensation forming on his on his beard and patrick dempsey the guy from that hospital series that pretty kind, well that kind that, of cool that kind of guy, that guy, yes, that kind of guy but right. bearded and he's he's driving an old motorbike perhaps a triumph or a royal enfield and he's he's driving across this pan and he goes past surreally parked cars uh, there's an e-type jaguar there's a morgan there's a ferrari testarossa these are old cars right not well they're, they're cars but they're, they're not all old and um he just keeps on going it's, it's of no concern to him until eventually he arrives at a piece of furniture in the middle of the of the desert. He, he dismounts from his Royal Enfield and he walks across and he sits in the chair and puts his feet up. And that, bar one caption that reads, taste never goes out of style, is the advertisement. That's all it is. And it's for Waylance, the out the what they call, I think quite neatly, home outfitters. It's much better than home decor or home furniture. Home outfitters sound like it's made to measure Savile Row for, for, for tables and chairs. It allows you to charge twice as much as everybody else. Well, absolutely. But but and then over all all of this, as, as I say, there's no voice, but there is some music, and maybe we should just hear a tiny piece of the music. There's the motorbike. Oh. Radar Love. Radar Love. An interesting choice because everything about the visuals is smooth and tasteful and stylish. And I would have thought that Radar Love wasn't quite the most smooth and tasteful and stylish. I would have thought something like Sade or or perhaps Brian Ferry, or a bit of oh, Slipknot, perhaps. Uh, I mean, those, those uh, would be... That would be so passé. This is what caught your attention. This is what got you going, because oh, it was retro, yes, and it felt... Course. It reminded you of the It was the tension days. within. It was the contrast. You're absolutely right, Bruce. Why did I miss that? You didn't. <laughs> anyway, I think the reason I've chosen it as, as a hero is not necessarily because I particularly like the ad. I, mean, I don't think you need to like a brand to like the ad, nor, nor like an ad to admire the ad. What I admire is the courage the single-mindedness it's effectively for a furniture store but there are no tables and chairs bar the one that our hero sits on and it's very very courageous in that respect there's no price flashes and sale until friday it's just building the waylance brand in a very uh single-minded way oh andy rice cheeky charming irreverent Andy Rice, who died earlier on today. Anthony Sampson of Brand Finance sent me a wonderful message earlier today. And he said, farewell, old foe, you will be missed. Oh, and it was just lovely. He had this wonderful ability to transcend arguments and fights within the advertising industry, the enormous egos of the advertising industry as well. Um, let's talk to Rafil Weir Maluleka, who is the managing director at Yellowwood, where Andy Rice, of course, was the founder of Yellowwoods. And I think it's a sad day in your building today, Rafil Weir. Good evening. Good evening, Bruce, and good evening to all of your listeners. It is absolutely a sad day for us at Yellowwood and uh, for the entire TBWA group, right, to have lost someone who made such a phenomenal contribution, not only to the industry, um, but of course, uh, to, to, to Yellowwood uh, by, by founding the business and um, establishing something that has existed for 27 years and, and continues to thrive. Could 
to anyone at Yellowwoods with any degree of certainty tell what Andy was actually thinking because he was so polite. <laughs> he was such a wordsmith. He was so capable of crafting a thought on the fly that you'd be left for days afterwards going, what did he mean by that? <laughs> I was flummoxed by him so often and I loved it about him. It was just this, this ability um, to do the most eviscerating criticism. And you wouldn't know that he'd, you know, told you off until days later. You went, oh, yes, maybe I, step, I overstepped or I overdid it or whatever the case. Did you guys have the same problem to feel with? Well, absolutely. You know, he was a wonderfully enigmatic man in that way. Um, and I think it, it really was part of his strength. You know, it, it's part of what contributed to making him a wonderful strategist because it means he was always thinking about things in a different way um, and finding different ways to articulate things and, and, and get to the root of a problem. Um, it's undoubtedly what made him a wonderful speaker, as we've heard many times on your show and Anyone who's been fortunate enough to, to, to have watched him deliver any kind of address would, would be test, big testament to that. And, of course, made him a wonderful leader, right? Because he always made you think more deeply, right? There was nothing remotely superficial about any comment Andy made. Um, and that kind of requirement to think deeply was, was wonderful. Rafilwe, thank you very much indeed. Rafilwe Maluleke this evening, Managing Director at Yellowwood. Yeah, Andy co-founded Yellowwood um, with Anne Stevens and Kay Nash um, way beyond, uh, a long time ago. Uh, Pepe Murray, we struggled to raise him, so um, we are running short on time. I don't want to waste Pepe's insights, producers, so let us pause Pepe. Um, please, and chat to him in a few minutes' time after Eyewitness News and Sport. I'd like to give him some time. Uh, but let's uh, catch up, and then Norman McKechnie disappears. Okay. <laughs> Norman McKechnie, of course, is a portfolio manager at Momentum Asset Management, and we are going to talk markets uh, with Norman in just a moment on a day where markets were kind of dull in the morning session and then warmed up as the day progressed and actually turned out not to be a bad day, Norman. But I'm really bored of this infernal sideways movement of markets looking for some sort of certainty or some sort of direction to break out of a decade-long channel of, of indecision, I'm, I'm afraid. What is, what is your reading of markets at the moment, Norman? Good evening. Hi, Bruce. Yeah, I think, you know, if one looks at them, clearly you've, uh, we all know about the Magnificent Seven. Certainly, if you've been listening to your show and, and, and what's been happening with artificial intelligence stocks, semiconductor stocks, etc., I think they've been the major driver of the markets. If you would extract those out, I mean, the U.S. market has gone sideways. Our market as well, I think there's been a lot of foreign selling, a lot of disinterest, although we have seen that pick up somewhat. But I think if one looks at it, uh, you know, what, what is the backdrop? We've had pretty good growth coming out of the U.S. We were looking for, or the consensus was looking for a rate cut in or the Fed cutting in March. That with those numbers, the, the uh, payroll numbers that came out Friday, it looks like um, that's all been pushed out. So uh, I think with perhaps muddled through uh, growth in terms of consensus, rates coming off in the second half of the year, it probably is sideways and volatile from here until we get some direction from the Federal Reserve Bank. 
Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, we're stuck in this internal um, sort of groundhog day of grinding sideways markets. Uh, in the meantime, of course, we've just, you know, the, the there isn't too much corporate news around the mining in Darbo and the, the progress that finally is being made in terms of a program to help mining licensing and a commitment from Guede Mantash and a, commit, a commitment from Sir Ramaphosa um, to aiding and abetting a recovery in electricity and all of the issues with which we know. Um, it's quite encouraging, I think, to see that there is still huge appetite for the mining in Daba and you know, certainly continental mining ambitions. Bruce, I think that's right. I think, you know, it, it is unfortunate, I think, that we haven't, uh, it's taken us a long time to actually sort of progress the licenses. And if you speak to people who've been to the regional offices, it looks like most of those files are piled up to the ceiling and nothing's been attended to. So uh, to get some movement there, I think, is positive, uh, it, you know, when that happens. I think the other thing, just to bear in mind, just how long it takes to get a mine off the ground, and one sort of wonders if it does start now, that's great. Uh, obviously, if we address some of the energy issues and transport issues, that's a further positive. But um, uh, what worries me is if we do put these new mines in and we start to develop, obviously, uh, Bulelwa talked about, you know, the, the um, land reform and, and trying to improve a lot of uh, the people, that, the communities that live in those areas. But the yeah. problem is, you know, even if we do, it's a five-year uh, time horizon. And, you know, we could the, the cycle could have started and ended by the time you've got your mine up and running. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah. you know, I think net, net, net um, it, at least we're moving in the right direction. Thank you very much, Norman McKechty, Portfolio Manager at Momentum Asset Management this evening. Bringing us very neatly to half past six and time for your very latest eyewitness news. That eyewitness news, of course, is brought to you by our fabulous and very stylish friends at Khaliks. Khaliks for the businessman who knows what he wants. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, bringing you insights to unlock sustainable finance in Africa's mining sector. APSA is a registered FSP. To Pepe Marais we go this evening. Pepe, of course, is a legend of the advertising industry. Pepe has, uh, was the founder of, co-founder of Joe Public. Um, and we've asked you, Pepe, just to remember Andy Rice for us this evening. Andy Rice, a long-time contributor to the show, said he died this morning after a long period of ill health and um, just the the commentary that is coming through the comments that have come through to me today um, just really I show the the enormously high regard in which Andy has been held for for decades in the South African advertising industry absolutely Bruce and good evening um, yeah a long time it is quite amazing well not amazing quite a thing I wasn't aware until I got the message from your studio and I was in a meeting with our board, all our partners. We had a, a workshop today looking at the future and then get the news of someone that's been so instrumental to the past 30, since I can remember, you know. So just, I suppose, first and foremost, just on behalf of our leadership and our agency, condolences to Andy and his family. Yeah. But, but then, look, it's just amazing. Andy is just, like you, you mentioned earlier on his wit, that man and 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 the wit, the the sharpness of his tongue and his pen, is is what I will remember him for. And his extremely sound, creative mind. And we're discussing it. And and one of the people, actually, um, our coach who we work with, actually worked with 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 Andy on a strategy for massive 
South African brand. And he was saying, oh, Andy was so gentle, but so firm, you know, oh, such absolutely. a gentle giant, but very, very incisive. So yeah, this just quite a day for our industry to lose such an icon. Absolutely. And uh, again, Andy Rice, massively soft-spoken, but knew his strengths, knew what he was good at, created with his partners Yellow Woods, um, and I think has made an enormous contribution beyond just advertising, just in terms of helping certainly helped me understand advertising better. I don't claim to have a 3% knowledge rate of of advertising, but understanding that what you like and don't like doesn't actually matter when it comes down to the power of communication and messaging and really just broadening, I think, all of our minds over many, many years as to what works and what doesn't and why advertising does work, or at least the 50% that works. Absolutely. Or at least maybe the 2%. No, it all works. I shouldn't say that on air. But but I also, similarly, you know, when you asked me to come into those times when Andy couldn't be there, I was like, how do I fill those shoes? Literally. I mean, the man was a giant, literally and figuratively. So, so absolutely. Yeah. Um, just, just huge endearing thoughts about Andy and the way he served this industry and the way he loved creativity as a strategist. He loved the work. And he knew the work. So so just as I said, condolences to his family and he left the he left the mark on this industry. Pepe Morea, thank you very much indeed for um, joining us this evening to remember the great Andy Rice. People will refer to him as a giant, and they will because he was six foot eight tall. Not great if you fly Kalula.com. Very modest. He used to do that quite a lot. Um, so we will um, we will celebrate Andy Rice. We will sing his name from the rooftops. And if he is standing in the queue at the pearly gates this evening, he's blushing. And that's a good thing. We like that. On your next Money Show, Norman Dresselmann, the chief executive of Retailability. It's a company that owns Edgar's, Legit and Kido, will be our shapeshifter. He'll discuss the peaks and valleys, of course, of the industry and some recent floods because he bowed out of a recent interview because of KZN flooding. Also, consumer ninja Wendy Nola and, of course, business unusual with the advisor Niven Posma. Listen there next time on The Money Show. 702. Bruce is on the money show. Let's move on to the Africa Free Trade Agreement. Long overdue, finally taking shape, and it really does provide potential new and exciting markets for exporters across the continent, not just South Africans, but that's our focus. This is a journey of a thousand miles, however. Full benefits are likely to be felt only in years to come, but the point is it's begun. Finally, it's begun. Quinton Zunga is the chairman of the investment firm RH Managers, and it is a baby steps process, Quinton, I think. There was lots of fanfare last week, and we um, had, of course, um, the, the government singing the praises of the deal. But it takes a, quite a long time, I suspect, for businesses to learn to trust and for the borders really to open and for things to work efficiently. Thank you, Bruce, and thank you to your listeners. Yes, it does take a lot of time. Uh, free trade agreements uh, around the world are notoriously difficult to put together and also notorious, notoriously difficult to implement. So it is baby steps. We started seeing the first kind of trading going on in small steps uh, 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 recently, and we're expecting things to grow. Uh, as we go along, but at least something has started, and that's that's positive. 
Is this a fundamental shift just for trade across borders or is there a shift here in terms of the way we need to be thinking about investing across borders? It is a fundamental shift because for a long time, uh, African countries were looking to the west and to the east in terms of trading. So at least on paper, we have the protocols to start trading amongst ourselves which should give a multiplier effect to uh, development across the continent. Obviously, uh, there's a lot that needs to be done in terms of uh, everybody actually participating. We have to now look at marketing products within the continent, which is new. We have to look at marketing products in, in areas that we haven't. So it is a fundamental shift. And I think it is something that will take time. But over a long term, it is clear free trade agreements do change how people trade in the better. There is conflict. And I mean, even in some of the most exciting economies on the African continent, there are issues of conflict and instability. And the politics of politics is politics. A lot of people are going to be apprehensive, I think, about taking that, that first step. Yes, I think the, the history of trading across the rest of the continent has been quite um, uh, uh, challenging. I remember Supergroup had a challenging transaction some years ago and so forth and so forth. And now you, ha- you add conflict, you're not too sure what the counterparty risk is. But I guess with everything that starts, there is an ecosystem that develops around it, how people trust each other, payment protocols, it allows the ecosystem around payments, new, new products to come into the market. So it, once the protocols are there, one can't uh, uh, completely limit what the potential is. And it's, it's going to be up to the market participants to, to move in and, and, and take advantage of what's available. Thank you, Quentin Zunga, this evening, Chairman of RH Managers. In a moment, the long-promised how to turn carbs into protein. Many of you will be listening out for that one uh, because it's a miracle of science. Wouldn't it be nice if it was easy? But yes, there is a connection between taking carbs that are a waste product and turning them into animal food. That's coming up in a moment. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Ask any dietitian and they'll tell you beer is a carb. Now imagine if you could convert beer into protein. Now don't get too excited, but there is a great story here somewhere. The black soldier fly. There are farms of uh, creating black soldier fly all over the world. There's one in Cape Town that's using waste from the brewing process to feed to insects, which are then converted into two different streams of nutritional products. Not everybody's the idea of a crunchy burger, I suppose. But Dean Smorenberg is the chief executive at Maltento. Uh, just take us through small steps, if you would, Dean. You, you produce fly larvae at scale, and ultimately you will turn those fly larvae, for now anyway, into food for animals, certainly into chicken feed and, and into other products. But take us through the process of how you take the used grains from brewing beer and convert that ultimately into animal food. Yeah, good evening, Bruce, and good evening to your listeners. 
Um, so basically what we do is we take the spent brewery grains, which is effectively the barley that's left left over after all the sugars have been extracted by the brewing industry. And that, of course, goes to, to making the delicious beer we all drink. And we take that um, that sort of waste stream, which is 75% moisture. We mix that with some other nutrients. The spent brewery grains make sort of a great pillow for the, for the larva to work through. Um, and we take that and we feed that to the larva. And within 10 days, they grow to sort of a, a, a mature larva size. And then we take that, we harvest it, and we make three products actually out of it. One is a dried insect, which goes to the American backyard chicken market, which if you can believe it, it's the third biggest pet market in America behind cats and dogs. Um, so that's one of our big markets. We also make a giant smoothie out of the product, which actually really is a flavor and aroma, which goes into your traditional pet food, cats and dogs, and that's mainly in South Africa at the moment. And then the third product is the byproduct of the insect. So once they've eaten that spent grain, there's sort of the excrement or poop, if you will, and, uh, and whatever is not digested by them. And that is what we call frass. And that frass gets turned into a soil amendment, which goes back into crop farming. I mean, this is the, I mean, we keep hearing about the circular economy and we've got to be more sensitive about the way we extract resources and we've got to use stuff more effectively. I mean, if there is a better example in the world, I haven't heard one this week, of literally taking waste product and taking a uh, what we would regard as a pest um, and quite a scary pest, I think, the black soldier fly, and, and really uh, counterintuitively taking a whole bunch of waste stuff, then using the, the larvae and then the larvae's waste uh, to then put back into the soil and to, to ultimately create this, this wonderful um, circular economy innovation. Yeah, exactly. I think, look, uh, just to defend this little black soldier fly, he's got some bad cousins, yeah. the house fly and the blowfly, which have given him a bad rep. But this particular one is non-pest, non-pathogenic. So uh, we, we quite like them. Um, but yeah, from a, from a sustainability circular economy, it really is a fantastic story. And really, the, the problem with spent brewery grains is because it's got such a high moisture content when they get rid of it, you're basically transporting water. So as much as we call ourselves a farm, Really, it's done in an industrial building, so we're in Epping with our current one, which is pretty much as close as you can get to the two breweries in Cape Town, being SAB and Devil's Peak. And so you're really sort of shortening the supply chain of that spent brewery grains and therefore kind of the, the environmental footprint of that spent brewery grain. Uh, what would have happened to this waste previously? Would it just have gone into some kind of landfill? We chose a bad market, so Cape Town is actually sort of the most developed market for the for sort of the brewing industry because we have a good dairy and and um, swine market down here. So really, that in Cape Town it does have a market that still has to travel quite far out to sort of Malmesbury. But as you go sort of more north, Joburg, Durban, even there's it's it, you have to go a little bit further to get that brewery grain to its secondary market, which adds logistics, which adds cost, and then the farmer sometimes substitutes it out because it's not a great product to work with because it's wet and it's spoiled. You go further north of our borders into Africa, that's where you see the real value here, where there really isn't a secondary market close by and the logistics is harder. So that's really where we want to get to in time is to be able to sort of build these larger scale facilities in Africa. And it's, yeah, the, the wonderful opportunity, of course. And uh, ultimately, I mean, I can't get over the fact that chickens are the third biggest 
family pet, if you like, if you know you treat your yeah. pets like you treat your chickens. Um, but it, yeah, it's astonishing, and this is a great export product, and, and it's got domestic uses as well. What sort of tonnages are you producing, and what percentage of what you produce is sold domestically versus what is exported, Dean? Yes, at the moment we're producing about 75 tons a month of insects, so it's quite a few of them. Um, <laughs> most of that is exported currently, um, but we sort of, yeah, we'll be at about a 50-50 balance within this year. Um, and then as the business scales, more will go into the U.S. again, just because that market for pets is just so big. Um, and interesting, I heard you speak about the Goa Treaty earlier, and we sort of able to trade under that. So, yeah, hoping that stays in place. <laughs> Dean Smorenberg, thank you, the chief executive at Moltento. Uh, and that's converting brewery waste into food for black soldier fly larvae, then taking the poop from the black so- so- soldier fly larvae and putting that back into the soil. Circular economy uh, flying high in Epping Industria in the Western Cape. Most of that uh, result, of course, creates another export market. It's a fabulous tale. Thank you, Dean Smorenberg. Uh, time for Eyewitness News. Um, and also after Eyewitness News, of course, the Money Show continues. We will be talking in a couple of minutes' time, of course, to Dr. Rutendo Quindingui. Um, Rutendo is with our Africa Business Report. And David Shapiro standing by with our Signals feature. That's still to come on the Money Show this evening. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, bringing you insights to unlock sustainable finance in Africa's mining sector. ABSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Just listening to Roger Jardine in Eyewitness News. He's creating a new political movement. And I wondered just how many pages and pages and pages of voting slips we're going to have to wade through to make our political choice on election day. Um, I've, I find it interesting. I mean, Roger Jardine at the Cape Town Press Club, it's a very influential circle of people. It's a good way to get attention. But I wonder how many and these dyed-in-the-wool members of the ANC, dyed-in-the-wool families, people would meet before elections and would discuss whether or not they would continue to support a political party, whether they, how they would cast their vote. And of course, everybody in the family, you know, stands in front of the ballot paper as an independent individual and make the cross wherever they like. But you had these big families, I think, extended families who would make broad decisions and have big discussions about the way they would vote. And as you get families like the Jardine family, clearly, which is going, we can't go down this path anymore. Um, 30 years into democracy, a democracy that's not delivering for people, a democracy that has been betrayed in many respects. I'm, I'm not put, don't intend to put words into the Jardine family's mouth, but I can only imagine how it, it's playing out. Roger Jardine, of course, was chief executive of this company, the company that owns this radio station, before going across the road, diagonally across the road, to chair the first RAND group. And it, uh, from a political principles point of view, from a policy point of view, I think it's going to be really interesting. What sort of in- uh, impact are the small parties going to have? Well, it's going to be interesting to see how it dilutes support for political parties across the spectrum and where that is weighted, whether it has more of an impact on the ANC or more of an impact on the DA. I don't think it's going to have these sort of emerging political parties going to have any huge impact on the EFF. If anything, the EFF, according to the latest polling, stands to benefit hugely from a sort of breakdown of traditional voting patterns. So fascinating stuff. 
as South Africa's elections draw closer and closer. Paying tribute to Andy Rice this evening. If you missed the news earlier, sadly, Andy Rice uh, died this morning. He's not been well for a considerable period of time. We did pay enormous tribute to him and he loved the fact that we did it. Um, and he loved hearing, you know, industry stalwarts paying tribute to him on The Money Show two years ago. And Jenny Cruis Williams, who just loved Andy so very, very deeply. And they had this wonderful rapport on her afternoon show on 702. And, um, and then Andy moved to The Money Show and I was so grateful for his wisdom and his insights and we've had wonderful reflective support for Andy and his family today and I'm sure they'll take great comfort in the fact that Andy was a deeply loved member of the the advertising community Um, the latest of those comes through on my uh, WhatsApp this evening from Happy in Chingila um, long term also in the advertising industry for for many many years and saying I just you know sorry I respected Andy so much sorry I couldn't come on tonight may he rest in peace what a legend and again that sentiment very strongly felt across um, the advertising industry this evening where Pepe Marais just half an hour ago saying he was in a board meeting and um, in a training session and Andy Rice became a topic of discussion as they became aware of the fact that he had died Andy Rice what a guy The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702 702 To David Shapiro we go. Now David Shapiro is the Chief Global Equity Strategist. Very fancy title. Um, At Sassfin. And David, in the olden days, China had a big tap somewhere in a basement, possibly in a big building in Shanghai or somewhere. And either if things were getting a little bit too hot, they would um, close the tap a little bit and take liquidity out of the market. If things were cooling down, they would open the tap just a little bit. And they seemed able to to control the, the the rate of growth in their economy almost by divine intervention. Does that still exist as we look at signals for the future and our signals feature on a Tuesday evening? Do the Chinese still have that enormous power over the over the engine room of their economy? No, they've lost a lot of shine, Bruce. And uh, I you know it's been engineered. Um, I don't think uh, Xi Jinping thought this would happen. I think he thought he had uh, control over the economy, but uh, it it hasn't been a good time. So it's been a combination of a number of events that have kind of conspired to take the Chinese market down. Bruce, you know, we're at multi-year lows. I don't think people understand how far the Chinese market has fallen. You know, the Hang Seng, which is year, the It's a 30-year low. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the reality. Yeah. Yeah. We, talk, we exactly. talk about 30 years of democracy in South Africa. We talk about all of this sort of stuff. And while the Chinese economy ostensibly has been growing at 5 6 7%, uh, almost co- and compounded over many years, and there have been mm. some individual standout brilliant businesses that have grown exponentially in that economy, the overall market just doesn't reflect um, the, the hype no. cycle. No, no, it's it's given it all back. Uh, we we very close to Tencent because it influences NASPERS and Process. And I think over the last couple of years, uh, Tencent must be down 60%. And even at these levels shows no signs of, uh, of turning around or picking up. You know, growth is low. Um, the Chinese economy, oh, sorry, the Chinese authority, they clamped down heavily on financial services. 
factors on its industry, um, on education. Remember those stories, things have changed since then. So I think it's, in, in brief, uh, Bruce, people are abandoning China. Inve outside investors are, are abandoning it. Uh, Gaby to other countries like uh, India, which has now become the new driver of the global economy. Look, China is, China is still the second largest economy after the United States, but uh, uh, it's what adds to the growth of the world economy that uh, investors look to. So uh, it looks like India is going to be the, the uh, you know, the next big thing. But Bruce, I have to add one, uh, it's cheap. I think if you look at some of the Chinese stock, they're cheap, but, but I think the big worry and this came out of the property sector, is investors not quite sure how they'll be treated. You know, a huge amount of the debt that is owed to Evergrande, which is the property company that's collapsed, um, is foreign. And one's not quite sure what the foreign debt holders, what their rights will be um, in Chinese courts or whether the uh, Chinese government will stand behind them and make sure that they are able to get their money back. You know, these are outsiders. So there are a lot of things weighing on um, investors' minds when it comes to China. And, of course, we can't ignore that China is not growing at the same kind of pace that it, you know, it did. So all of those are conspiring, I think, to take the Chinese market down. Um, and I wonder, just, you know, India is a, a, a very big economy. India is yeah. a very powerful, fast-growing economy. Prime Minister Modi, not necessarily all that popular, but my goodness me, he's had a huge effect on the economy, a positive effect on the economy. Uh, and you wonder just whether or not India's got the the nous to pull it off as as China sort of recedes into the background. For years, global attention has been on China. For years, global attention has assumed that China was going to be overtaking America as the world's biggest economy. And that may or may not happen, um, but it's looking less certain than perhaps we believed it might be five I, years ago. It's it's difficult to invest in India. You know, and and we look at it, you know, always looking for companies here, but it seems to be very fragmented. Uh, it's difficult yeah. to to get into your teeth into anything. So yeah, you've got to ask uh, the best way. And, and Bruce, I still play China this way. Don't don't underestimate the purchasing power of the Chinese, of the Chinese middle class. So I think if you are looking to take advantage of that, you know, look at uh, travel, look at luxury goods. Um, you know, look at consumer goods. That's that for me is the way to play uh, China. You know, if you look at LVMH or Ferrari or uh, any of these big uh, luxury brands, um, you'll find that you know Chinese market is still very, very vibrant. Um, I suppose that's a way to to, to play Ch uh, India as well. But I'm not quite sure what I did learn, <laughs> and and this is quite astonishing. Is that China? I mean, India is one of the biggest whiskey markets in the world you know yes, so yes. i'm saying okay <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I i never associated the the indians with drinking whiskey but i mean they, they're coming out with some wonderful brands for themselves but i but you know as frivolous as it might sound i don't i find it very difficult to to invest in india you know to say okay give me a company give me one that i can invest in uh, whereas we used to say that with Alibaba or JD.com or mm. Tencent or Idu or you know a lot of businesses like that, um, having great difficulty in in finding something in India, you know that um, 
that you you know that you can really buy. Maybe an index. I don't know. There might be a Chi- an Indian ETF that you can buy, but it's, but it's not as not as attractive, say, as finding stocks in in China. Thank you, David Shapiro, who is the global market strategist at Sasfin this evening. Thank you, David Shapiro, uh, very much indeed. Focus, therefore, returns to the United States, which is trading almost at record highs on a regular basis. And so Warren Ingram this evening on our personal finance feature will be picking up on that theme of the continuation of the American rebound that won't stop until it does, of course, and then all kinds of hell will break loose. But we'll pick up with that with Warren in the next 15 minutes or so. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Unlocking sustainable finance for mining across Africa through positive disruption to unearth their clients' growth ambitions. APSA's a registered FSP. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. The Africa Business Report is brought to you by SAA, celebrating 90 years, connecting dreams, bridging continents, and soaring higher. Dr. Rutendo Huindingui is the funding director at Tribe Africa Advisory, also author of a fabulous book called Rumble in the Jungle Reloaded. Now, The Economist is a massively influential, they call it a newspaper, it looks like a magazine, publication. <laughs> we'll, call it, we'll call it a publication. Um, and they come out um, with the Intelligence Corporate Network Africa Business Outlook Report. And I'm sure it's very, very dense. I'm sure it's very, very meaty. But I'm curious as to what you, as a specialist on this continent, take out of the Economist Intelligence Report. Hi, Bruce. Uh, thank you for quoting me the, the title of specialist. It makes me feel very, very important. But uh, the shorter version is the EICN. Uh, Business Outlook 2024 report on Africa. And I actually participated um, in a panel discussion earlier on uh, this month, Bruce, with regards to that and uh, coordinated by Sam Roland and his team who leads up the team for Sub-Saharan Africa. But uh, a great survey, a great report. Uh, Just to give some context, uh, the key sectors they looked at uh, in terms of the respondents, 13% were finance and insurance, 13% from manufacturing with about 11% from uh, electricity, gas, and water sectors. And uh, the three key countries that respondents came from, Bruce, was South Africa, 46%, Nigeria, 17%, and 8% from Kenya. So looking at sub-Saharan Africa, which carries the bulk of the African economy, uh, it gives quite a nice spread. Uh, so out of that, Bruce, I think five key trends that they picked up that, the, that they say, based on what uh, C-suite corporate leaders are saying, will impact the African economy going into 2024. Uh, the five key trends, they said currency adjustment. And I think we've seen that with the US dollar and the fluctuations and how it's related to the local currencies. Africa dynamism, which really relates to the entrepreneurial frame, the drive, uh, the price pressures, talking to the market competitiveness, uh, the security hotspots. And I'll talk a bit about that in terms of, especially from the West Africa, Sahel region, in terms of what's happening there and the financial squeeze really talking about the cost of okay. money and the f- squeeze yeah. on finance. So those are really the, the, the sort of the areas that they'll be highly impacted on. And Bruce, I think uh, the three sort of areas that they believe will be the high risks in terms of affecting business, in terms of affecting governments and stability on the continent, albeit there's opportunity, will be you know the coups 
which have happened quite a lot. If we can sort of reduce those, then obviously they bring stability, uh, climate change and the effects of food shortages and also supply chain disruptions brought about with regards to uh, the, the global geopolitics, Ukraine and the Middle East. So it's quite a comprehensive report, Bruce, but I think the exciting, I think the key highlight that came out of me, one of the key graphs that they highlighted, which I thought was actually quite uh, enlightening, was that out of all the respondents, I think on average, more than 50% say that there was an alignment with regards to the perception of Africa between the leadership in Africa and those in terms of their counterparts in the head office. So multinationals with the head office in a first world country were saying that more or less the alignment of perception in terms of the outlook of Africa was more or less the same perception that the okay. local guys had. And that's important because obviously uh, Africa is no longer a dark continent. People have got quite a lot of visibility and that makes a big difference. So a, a comprehensive report, very exciting, Bruce. It's the stuff you've been talking about and writing about for years. They finally played catch up with you. Um, <laughs> This makes my blood run cold. Um, it's this. It's when politicians start thinking that it's a good idea to tinker with the central bank, and we've had various attempts at assaulting our uh, the defences of the Reserve Bank of South Africa. The latest was to dip into the reserves of the Reserve Bank without fully understanding the nature of those reserves. But now Tunisia has come up with a new idea. They're not going to. No. They're not going to get steal the money from the central bank. They're just going to borrow it. Oh, my goodness me. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Playing with fire. It's playing with fire. When you, get fly, when you play with fire, you get burnt. Yeah. Uh, this comes out of President Kais Saeed, uh, who's gone in and has changed or is in the process of changing the legislation. Uh, Tunisia, just to give you some context, there's a as a budget deficit of 3.2 billion US dollars. And they want to change the, the legislation to force the, the, the central bank to directly buy up 2.25 billion dollars of interest-free bonds to, to help with that deficit. Obviously, this creates a, a, a huge dilemma in the, in the fact that ultimately, you know, once you politicians start directly interfering with um, with 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 uh, with the fiscal uh, policy, then uh, obviously it, it, it's a road. It's 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 a, it's a slippery dark road, uh, and everybody gets hurt. Uh, the laws that have been added. Uh, by the central bank to a growing list of institutions that Mr. Saidi has sought for is, is to actually directly do this. So it's a big concern. Uh, Tunisia as an economy uh, relies on a lot, as it relies on exports. It's got a great vibe with regards to dealing with the international community. But right now the monetary, the IMF is not giving it money. Uh, so it's, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, Bruce. Yeah, most certainly is. Um, the death over the weekend of the Namibian president, the Namibian president who has uh, been making, I think, some quite exceptional strides in the development of the Namibian economy. We spoke recently to the guy who's heading up the, the project around oil exploration and the discoveries of the Namibian coast. And you get a very clear sense that President Heinkop had a, a very big idea as to the potentiality of Namibia as a, a much stronger economy than we might have anticipated it would become 30 years ago. Yeah, and uh, I mean, our, our sincere condolences to the people of Namibia on the passing of President Hague at 82. And uh, I mean, he came quite, uh, he had quite a strong background, obviously took over Sam Nyoma in 2015. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of great expectation uh, that was seen with him, Bruce. I think one of the key things that people were speculating was, or people highlighted, was that uh, President Gengob uh, was seen as a, as a modern thinking person. 
and he did a lot of great things. Uh, he was a revolution, part of the revolutionary team that obviously uh, contributed to the success of Namibia. But if you look at it from, from a good legacy perspective, just looking at the key things that happened under his reign and which continue to happen. Now, Namibia, from an economic perspective, it was expected to grow from 3.5% in 2023 uh, to 2.9%, and they're probably going to average around 3%. So the economy is, is stable. Uh, it's a major diamond producer and a significant deposit of lithium and rare earth, and he's, he's kind of maintained uh, that, that industrialization. Uh, he's also personified a, a, a changing of the guard. His advanced formal education is left an imprint on the way of governance. So those are all the positive things. Uh, some of the controversial things, Bruce, uh, when I say controversial, it depends which side of the line you are in. Uh, he of stood course. up with regards to the Middle East and he, he, he took Germany, which obviously, you know, I've got a strong history with, with Namibia. Uh, in terms of their stance with regards to the conflict between the Palestines and, and the Israelites. So obviously that's created a bit of controversy in terms of where you stand. Over and above that, um, he's also uh, been, I mean, the idea was that he was going to bring a lot of positive things and a lot of positive changes, education. Uh, he brought a lot of promises to the people, which all politicians uh, do. And uh, somehow people feel he has that's unfulfilled. So... Um, Always, you know, we think yeah. again, you know, in, in life's balance sheet, if you like, there, there are debits and credits in, in all of our lives. And I, I, I look at whether people have had a, a more positive than negative impact, particularly in the filthy game of politics as to whether or not what were your intentions? Did you deliver on your intentions? Were you delivering on your intentions? Did you were you heading down a path that was to the benefit of your country, your country's yeah. economy and future generations? And I think on balance, it, it he was going the right way. Certainly, he seemed to have a very good head on his shoulders and uh, was 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 driving Namibia with with a very clear sense of purpose. No, you're right there, Bruce. And even if you look at, you know, there are very few leaders at this point in time looking at global geopolitics that when he passes away, uh, all corners of the earth were kind of uh, given recognition in terms of what he did. So he had his shortfalls, but, uh, you know, Joe Biden, from an American perspective, was complimenting the, the Europe, the, the European leaders were complimenting in terms of the things he had achieved. Even the East uh, were complimenting him in terms of what he has achieved. So... Um, it's, I think it's a hard line to, to, to tow with regards to being a politician in this day and age. Uh, ultimately, I think he had positives uh, over negatives. This is my perception if I look at his track record and what he's achieved. And uh, I th Namibia has always been a close cousin of South Africa uh, and they've been stable. And uh, they've stuck to the, uh, the straight and narrow for a period of time. Uh, the question is the new guy who's coming on board uh, how is he going to react? How is he going to embrace this and take things to the next level? And that'll be the space to watch, Bruce. Most certainly, um, successes. You've inherited a stable, uh, high-functioning democracy. Yes, there are issues of inequality. Yes, there are huge legacy issues in every single former colonial country where the, you have generations of hurt and work to do to do a proper repair job but my goodness me if you act with purpose and you yeah. act with um intention and you act <laughs> i mean you don't allow yourself to, to be sidelined by petty squabbles and nastiness within your own ranks i think you've got a better than even chance of being remembered with a fair amount of warmth thank you to dr Rutel the money show personal finance with warren ingram
Personal Violence brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank built for your business. That uh, news, I was beginning to get quite curious as to how the presidency was going to manage uh, Edward Kisvetter's imminent retirement um, because he has been at SARS, what he would have been by the end of April, just two months away. Um, he would have been 65 and would have served the full term of a five-year contract, which when he signed up for it, and I recall him saying very, very clearly to me at the time that he'll do five years of national service. It's not something that he wanted to do, but it was something that he felt obliged to do um, as somebody who had extensive SARS experience, somebody who'd gone out of government service into the private sector um, and had um, really uh, been able to rebuild after the destruction of SARS and the Tom Moyani and the very deliberate sort of strategy that was, we, we, we assume the Nugent Commission certainly told us it was a deliberate strategy uh, to undermine SARS. You break SARS, you break the accountability, you break tax collection. The madness of that strategy you know, <laughs> because it allows for the short-term plunder rather than a sustainable society. And I think Edward Kiesfeld has done a fine job. He, I'm not sure who takes over from Edward Kiesfeld. Maybe that's why the presidency has been reticent to make an announcement. And I think there are three deputy commissioners, all fairly recent commissioners, uh, all recent appointments in the last eight or nine months or so. So perhaps a little bit too soon to make a call as to who would be ideally suited to take over from Edward Kiesvetter. But yes, time will tell, um, and um, we watch this space very, very closely. The other one, of course, is the Reserve Bank Governor, uh, Lissette Chaniaho, whose second five-year term uh, comes up uh, later on this year. I'm curious as to the replacement there as well, or whether or not we'll get the 11th hour replacement uh, announcement that it, uh, that um, uh, that the that this Chanyaho will serve a bit more time while they get their ducks in a row. So, yeah, so big changes, big changes coming through um, in government. But for now, Edward Kisvetter will stay. There's no time frame in place other than talking about an orderly transition. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on Cape Talk. Join the conversation. Well, various markets around the world are trading at or close to record levels, most notably the United States, after a huge final quarter rally at the end of last year, which has continued by and large into this year as well. Markets like our own, of course, have continued to languish, waiting for direction. David Shapiro was telling us how dreadful the Chinese investment markets have been, despite the fact that that is an economy that's supposed to have had really strong growth over many, many years. Um, the uh, equity market it just has not delivered on investors' expectations. And um, I was looking at a story earlier on today, um, just in terms of the, the state of American markets, and they say the what they call them the Magnificent Seven are actually the Magnificent Four this year because um, they early in 2024, we've seen downgrades on Tesla. We have seen Meta also lose its shine. But NVIDIA, the microchip maker, has been nothing short of extraordinary. And all of the AI hype 
um, perhaps is delusional. And uh, so what against that backdrop do you do as an investor? Because you're getting very little return on your money in real terms on the JSE. You're certainly not going to get return on your money by investing in the China index. You might get something out of India, but certainly the driving force in the world right now is the United States. But the United States is 30% more expensive than it was this time last year. So we make it the problem of co-founder of Galileo Capital, certified financial planner Warren Ingram. So what to do, Warren Ingram, in a world where America is everything and everything is 30% more expensive than it was a year ago? What action do we take? Yeah, th- th- thanks for the very hard question, Bruce. I, I appreciate it. What a, what a way to, to hit the early part of the time. It's because I care uh, about you, and I and I, I I do like to stretch your grey matter as much as possible to keep you away from the diseases that you are at risk of at your age. <laughs> it's it's always good to be stretched when you're six foot three. So uh, I, I think uh, the, the 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 there's two parts to the answer. One is possibly we shouldn't suffer from a lack of imagination. So so we look at the world as it's been for the last five or 10 years. And, and all we see is America. Uh, and, and it's been a shining light, irrespective of who the president has been. Uh, the companies there have done incredibly well, and, and especially the, the, those, the, those tech businesses. Uh, and, and we think, well, th- there is probably no other market and, and no other sector in the world that, that can deliver that growth. And, and I think that that would be a lack of imagination because it, it doesn't take much for a, a, a market like India to continue reforming itself and, and all of a sudden become a very investable market. I, I agree with you, it's pro- probably not an investable market you know, for large amounts of global capital right now, but, but certainly could be. Uh, and, and then, you know, kind of a forgotten market in the world is, is Japan. You know, we, we, we kind of forget that it's one of the world's biggest economies. It, it has some of the world's best run companies, despite the uh, travails of uh, Toyota more recently, but uh, w- what's going on in Toyota in, in in Japan is a silent revolution of of regulatory reform and and making it a market that will be much more attractive to investors. So, so I think we've got to be careful about uh, too much focus on one place. Uh, having said that, uh, you know if you're looking at the tech sector and 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 especially those mega tech businesses in America, uh, my, my first word of caution would be don't chase those companies and add, you know, add money because they've done incredibly well over the last year or two and think that, uh, you know, if you buy now that you will be extremely well rewarded over the next five years. I, I, I suspect uh, they will fall foul of gravity and, and gravity in the financial markets is value, valuations. If a company is incredibly expensive, which those uh, m- many of those businesses are now, they are priced for perfection. And, and what I mean by that is they need to deliver fantastic results every single quarter to justify the share price they've got now. Uh, and, and the moment they disappoint, just have a look at what, what's happened to Tesla, uh, th- their share prices will fall. So, so starting point is uh, d- just just think more broadly, think more more diversified, and then secondly, uh, make sure that you're constantly rebalancing. I, I, I love the idea of rebalancing once a year, uh, and and that's not uh, on the scale. That's rebalancing your investment portfolio. So, if you've been writing the U.S. story and and the U.S. now makes up 
you know, 80 or 90% of your global stock market investments, it's time to rebalance, you know, m- make it look more like the, the balance of, of America across the world. In other words, it should be 60% or 65% of your portfolio, not, not, not 90. And by rebalancing, you're automatically selling markets that are more expensive and, and buying those that are, that are somewhat cheaper. And I, I think, you know, that's a great antidote to trying to speculate and predict what's going to happen. Because the truth is we, we don't have a clue what's going to happen, but, but we know valuations are, are, are critical in this, Bruce. No, absolutely. And the trouble is we, we see these and you start suffering from market FOMO and you start wanting to chase the returns because look at Elon Musk. He's a genius. Oh, look at the, the money he's made. Always the richest. Oh, no, only the second richest this week. Um, but it's just the, the the vagaries of these markets are the things that drive us, I think, up the wall. And it's not to be distracted by the hype and the excitement and the big shiny bells and whistles, which is a very hard thing to do when you are tuned into you know the bloombergs and cnbc's of the world and there are lots of flashy lights and graphs going in the right direction absolutely and and so uh, you know i think i almost want to kind of break the decision making into two parts one if you are an investor and you have money in these markets then 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 by all means please follow their rebalancing strategy to to make sure you're not overexposed to the most expensive parts if you're sitting on the sidelines and you possibly have been for quite some time waiting for things to get better and you feel like the markets have run past you and you don't know what to do uh, th- then I, I wouldn't go and take all of my money and, and, and dump it all into the U.S. market in one big lump sum. I, you know, c- consider that f- phasing in strategy where you take you take a lump sum, you divide it into 12 and automatically once a month on, on the same day every month. So the first Monday, for example, you, you put one twelfth of your money into the into the global markets and. But I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that some of your money will go in when the market's expensive. Uh, other portions might go in when it's very cheap. Uh, but, but over a, over a longer period of time, phasing money into, into a market that's been running well uh, is proved to be a very good strategy to protect you against a, a kind of a catastrophic collapse. You know, people that phased in just before the, the, the 1999 tech bubble burst, uh, you know, they, they didn't see the massive losses that, that others had. So, so I think that, you know, avoid market timing, do the rebalancing once a year, be disciplined about it. And, and then if you've got lump sums and you have been missing out, then please don't go now and, and take my comments around Japan and dump all your money into Japan. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying spread and diversify and sit back and, and wait for a year and then rebalance and, and, and then stay the course. You're a big fan of the global index funds. You're a big fan of the funds that invest, uh, you know, th- that that allow the sort of the best companies to rise to the top, for the cream to rise to the top. Uh, I, I am, and I think just to explain the logic a little bit further is is. Uh, um, investments that are incredibly expensive, uh, um, you know, if you, if you consider them over a 10 year period, they, they, they tend to end up at the bottom of the performance rankings, where, whereas in investments that are very cheap tend to stay at the top. And, and that's not over a one year period. Anything can happen over one, one year or two years or three years. But, but over long periods of time, costs have an enormous impact on, on the performance of your investment. So the, the one real benefit that, a, that an uh, index tracking port- portfolio has is it's, it's particularly low cost. Uh, and, and so, so it, it ticks a huge box for me on that point. And, and then secondly, 
that uh, the, the 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 current kind of star performers are in in, in an index, and and yes, you are now overexposed to those in, in, uh, as part of the index, and that that is a concern. But but equally, you will have some exposure to to the next stars. We, and no one knows what they are, but if you own a global index, you, you've got exposure to them. And and so, you know, if it's Japan in the next twenty years that becomes the dominant stock market, you you would have had exposure to Japan just by being in the index and not because you were a genius. And and I think it takes a lot to be humble enough to say I don't know and I'm not the expert uh, on, on predictions because no one is but but I can buy everything in proportion and and watch the results unfold and I think that, you know for me that's a, a huge attraction of, of index investing the temptation of course is to sell oh markets are at all-time highs you know the only way is down from here yes maybe you get another five or ten percent but then something's going to go wrong in the world and then there'll be panic and so i'm going to get out and wait until i can get certainty and it's the the eternal sort of i suppose risk that in that investors face i'd love to give a a, a South African example of, of how this can work against people that try and sell and, and especially trying to get timing right is uh, I know that I know they're, they're, they're having a tough time right now. But if we consider the rise and rise and rise and rise and rise of NASPAS and how many times market commentators would say, gee, this is an expensive share. You know, it's, it's poised to, to turn. It can't carry on like this. And then it carried on for another three years and, and then it carried on again. Uh, and and so trying to 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 predict the the end of a rise could, could be almost as damaging to you as uh, sitting on the sidelines waiting for for things to get better. So so I think that you know don't sell everything if you're worried. So if you've been riding this the, the magnificent seven, and you've got a massive overexposure, by all means take some profits. And 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 you know the R word is important here. The rebalancing is is key. So so that it means you reduce your exposure to to get to the right proportion. Uh, but but don't go from a hundred to zero in in the magnificent seven because uh, they could carry on getting a lot more expensive for for some time. We we just don't know, uh, and then missing out would would be equally damaging to you. So so I think it's about being very considered in the way that you buy and equally considered in the way that you sell. Great question for you this evening from Louise in Northcliffe, and because it's a higher grade question, I'm going to give you a moment to think about it. Um, Louise is, says, maintaining the right balance between discretionary and compulsory investments when approaching and going into retirement. What is the best thing to do? It's a very detailed question. I'd like us to get through some of the key points as quickly as we can this evening. Warren, uh, Warren Ingram, Galileo Capital founder and a certified financial planner, taking your questions this evening on The Money Show. The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. Before we answer the question, Warren, what is a discretionary versus compulsory investment that Louise in Northcliffe refers to? So, so compulsory investments are are retirement funds, and, and and those could be, you know, when you're saving a monthly amount that goes into your pension or your provident fund or your retirement annuity. Uh, equally, when you are retired and you start to draw money from those pension, provident, or RAs, the, the money gets converted into a life annuity or a living annuity, and all of that is considered compulsory money. And, and so there are laws that, that regulate how you go in, what they can do, and, and that's why they call it compulsory. 
uh, and essentially discretionary money is, is pretty much everything else, Bruce. So it would be things like unit trusts, uh, shares, exchange traded funds, cash in your money market account. Uh, all of those w w would would then be uh, discretionary because there is no regulation in terms of when you can access the money and and what tax what tax breaks you get. Because the truth is you don't get any. So so it's up to you what to do with the money, um, and and then the tax treatment of of the two is is quite different as well. Okay, cool, very good. So. Um, Louise, who's thought about this very, very hard, says discretionary investments provide liquidity and flexibility, but are not very tax friendly. Compulsory investments are tax friendly, but are more rigid when it comes to liquidity and flexibility. So my question, what is the right balance between discretionary and compulsory investments considering liquidity, flexibility and tax? Please help. I think Louise has sent us questions before, Bruce, and, and she sends the most fabulous questions. So, Louise, if you're listening, please keep going. It's, 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 it's really stretching the gray matter. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, there isn't a golden ratio. So, so I know she says in her question, there must be a kind of a, you know, nice rule of thumb that we can all follow. Um, so, so when you retire, the, the, to have money in unit trusts or shares, exchange traded funds and, and money markets accounts, uh, might not be the most tax, tax efficient thing that you can do, but they play a critical role for when you need a lump sum in a hurry. So, so for example, you know, the roof needs to be redone or the, the house needs to be painted. You can't really go to your living annuity and, and draw a lump sum from that. So you will always need access to, to lump sum money, uh, out of your discretionary assets. And, and, uh, you know, e equally, if you need to budget to replace your car at retirement every five or every seven years, again, you know, a discretionary investment is, is a very nice way of doing that. And you can manage your, your taxes there, Louise, because, you know, if you, if you put it in a exchange traded fund or a unit trust and you only draw money out of it every five years, you, you're, you're only going to be paying capital gains tax. And, you know, for, for very high income taxpayers, capital gains tax is very efficient. You know, you're probably in for 18% at the most. And I, I don't mind paying 18% if my alternative is 45% on income tax. So, so, you know, I think it's, it's not true to say that all discretionary investments are, are not tax efficient. Having said that, your, your retirement funds, uh, the, the money that's inside a retirement fund when you retire, it, it grows without paying tax on its own. In other words, a living annuity doesn't pay income tax, it doesn't pay dividends tax, it doesn't pay capital gains tax. So it's a very nice place to, to, to allow capital to grow. Uh, and if you, if you die um, and you've still got money in your, your living annuity, it goes to your beneficiaries without paying any estate duty or executor's fees, etc. So, so it is a very efficient way to move money from one generation to the next. SARS doesn't mind this at all. They're, they're encouraging you to put money into retirement funds. So it's not a tax dodge. I don't need to whisper that part of the, uh, of the conversation. So, so I think, uh, you know, I'm always going to say, have a blend. If you're very wealthy and you've got lots of money, but you, you might end up having a much bigger portion in discretionary assets and a much smaller portion in, in compulsory money and retirement funds. But, but the, the bulk of us, the, the biggest asset we'll have at retirement outside of our house will probably be our retirement funds. And then what I would say to you is protect your discretionary assets uh, and, and make sure that you don't draw them down when you do need those lump sums every five or seven years or whenever it's necessary. So 
I think always a blend. Uh, very wealthy people have will have more indiscretionary for, for the, the the ordinary citizens, the ordinary mortals like the rest of us. Retirement funds will just naturally end up being a bigger portion. So then be very protective of your discretionary assets. Warren Ingram, who is a certified financial planner and a co-founder and executive director at Galileo Capital. Thank you, Warren Ingram, very much indeed on a Tuesday evening on The Money Show.